Okay, your business is like a party. Your marketing is your invitation, and HubSpot.com is going to be how you get all the cool kids to show up. Today, it doesn't matter how great your product or service is, without consistent content as part of your advertising, people are going to find another party to go to. So do what we did, swap out your set it and forget it website for a platform built for today's web. Listeners of the show will get a free digital marketing ebook just for following the link, hubspot.com slash off the floor. That's hubspot.com slash off the floor. My name is Chris Lanham, and I am your host of Off the Floor, the show that is all about the learning process, the critical pivots along the way, and the positive ripple effects from those decisions. If you're a regular listener to this show, you're probably doing constant combat with your comfort zone, and I love that, and I'm glad you do too. So that's why I'm always trying to find people in a variety of professions that totally understand what that means and can be expert guides on how you can do exactly that. Today, we're going to explore a profession that's more impossible to get into than like MIT or the hottest nightclub in Las Vegas. We're going to talk to a real live Navy SEAL. His name is Brent Gleason. He's an author and he's going to share his story and his expert knowledge on teamwork, leadership, and winning the mental game even during the toughest of times. I am really confident you're going to enjoy this interview with Brent and I want to thank him for joining us on Off the Floor. We're talking to Brent Gleason. He's the veteran of SEAL Team 5. He's the author of the book, Taking Point, a Navy SEAL's 10 Fail-Safe Principles for Leading Through Change. And he was also Entrepreneur Magazine's, one of their top 10 CEOs. Brent, welcome to Off the Floor. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. For someone, especially with your, with your background and everything, I'm sure it would be weird to think that you could be scared of anything. But what was something in high school that was like your biggest fear? Maybe the scariest thing that you overcame or maybe something that you backed down from? Hmm, high school. Uh, I did a lot of different things in high school, actually. I, uh, since, we're, since we're diving deep here, a lot of things that people wouldn't realize, like I was... Yeah, I was a swimmer, but I was also in the band. <laughs> you know, nice. I was, I was a, you know, there was part of me that was a bit of a nerd uh, in high school. Um, but uh, I think just the the overarching fear of, uh, you know, you're in high school. It's the fear of not being accepted, you know, by a broader audience, and the fear of not being popular enough, and kind of all the the fears that all kids go through and trying to navigate the social complexity and those dynamics uh, as you're changing as a person and your environment is changing constantly. So. I think the overall fear was just that, that fear that I think most teenagers go through of how popular am I? Where do I fit in? Uh, you know, who am I as a person? Who am I becoming? That, that type of fear. For sure. If you could give yourself a note, like let's say you had the, the opportunity to, to give yourself a, a note on your first day of your freshman year of high school, and it's like from your future self, what do you think that you'd want to tell that ninth grade version of Brent Gleason? Uh, the main thing I would say, and I say this to, to my children uh, as well, but the, the main thing I would say is, you know, start living a life without regret now, take calculated risk and, you know, n- never leave anything behind that you uh, wish you would have tried, wish you would have done. Never be that person later in life that says, gosh, you know, I thought about that, but I just didn't do it. Yeah. 
Oh man, I love that. That was one of the, on Audible, you know, you can, you can save a little note and then write a little something and you make a clip. And that was one of the first things that I clipped on, the, on your book when I was reading it was that to live a life without regret. Um, I think that's such a powerful statement. And I think that, gosh, if that was just on everybody's locker <laughs> as a freshman. <laughs> that means that to do it in a, in a responsible manner, you know, keep, keeping in mind the, you know, the, the impacts your decisions have on others and always doing it from a, a purpose-driven, values-based approach, not from an irresponsible type of way, but in, Definitely. in a responsible manner, of course. <laughs> yes, I, I think we all know somebody from high school that, that lived it in an irresponsible sort of way. <laughs> not me. Yeah, never. No. I was I was the passenger in a car, but my buddy on the last day of school drove his Volkswagen Bug through our high school campus, and our the dean was chasing us, and he was like, he can't do anything to us now. And I was like, what? Oh, you- <laughs> uh, yeah. man! I, I, I yeah, I'm glad my parents are not on this podcast right now. Yeah, yeah. They would have stories. There you go. All right, so. Um, so now let's, let's jump into this, you know, just that, that transition now, you know, you're this college athlete, you're an academic, you're loading up on all these wonderful business skills. And yet that buddy calls you over to, to help him work out. And then talk about that inception point, like the catalyst that kind of got you steered in this different direction. Sure. So in college, I was a, you know, I played sports, I was a rugby player, but I was also in a fraternity. Um, but during the majority of my college experience, I never had any aspirations whatsoever of joining the military. Of course, this was just pre 9-11, so it was peacetime. And uh, obviously, those who were joining to serve their country is a little bit of a different um, mindset, of course, of what that service would entail, while also holding the, still the highest value, of course, to, to serve and give to causes bigger than yourself. But again, peacetime, a little bit different, um, which is why I have the utmost respect for our young men and women who go into service today, especially the, the guys that I mentor into the SEAL program, because they know they're going downrange to face the enemy. Uh, it's, it, there's not a question uh, in their minds about that. Um, but I had uh, two close friends. One was my roommate, uh, senior year. Uh, he was an All-American swimmer at SMU. Uh, and he was going to graduate and go to OCS, which is Officer Candidacy School, and then uh, join the Navy to become an Intel officer, which I thought was pretty cool. I also had one of our fraternity brothers who was a year behind us in school, uh, and he was one of these guys who wanted to be a Navy SEAL his whole life. This was his path, his journey, and so he was going to graduate and follow a similar path, either go to OCS or enlist and try out for the SEAL program. So I was obviously being the curious guy that I am, I was rather intrigued by this uh, aggressive and, let's face it, highly unrealistic career path (laughs) (laughs) sparking him upon based on the data showing the the high failure rate of candidates. But uh, during that, uh, I think during my junior and senior years, I started reading a lot of books about SEALs in Vietnam and the history of the Naval Special Warfare community. And he was starting to train. And then I graduated, took a job as a financial analyst with a large investment firm. He became a senior and we started to, to train together. For me, it was just a you know, way to stay fit, stay in shape. For him, it was training for the Navy and for hopefully getting into the SEAL program. And so nights, weekends, every night, I would literally uh, leave the office around six, go home, change, throw on a backpack, and I would run four miles from my downtown apartment to the SMU campus where I would meet him. We would swim about a mile, do some calisthenics, and I would run four miles home. Did this every night, uh, usually Monday through Thursday, and then usually Saturdays and or Sundays, we would do distance running. There's a lake in Dallas called White Rock Lake that's about a 10-mile loop, so we would run either once or twice around that as we built our <laughs> our distance running skills. Wow. Um, uh, every 
every weekend. And then gradually over time, between all the time we spent together, the dialogue we were having about the arduous journey he had ahead of him and all the books I was reading, uh, and coupled with the rather boring nature of my entry-level financial analyst position, <laughs> those, all those elements combined pushed me to make the first of many calculated risk decisions that I've made uh, in my life, which was, again, that was kind of the beginning of that live a life without regret journey. And one day I wrote my parents a letter and told them I was quitting my somewhat lucrative finance job to enlist in the Navy. <laughs> wow. We were a little, a little surprised by that. We hadn't really had any dialogue or conversations about uh, my interest in this. I had kind of kept that to myself uh, all the while, kind of thinking that I probably wouldn't do it. Uh, but then I just became so interested and so passionate about it. Wrote them a letter, quit my job the next day, and my buddy and I moved up to Crested Butte, Colorado, where we trained for about another five months for about five hours a day at 10,000 feet altitude so that we could get in the best physical condition that we could. And then in early 2000, uh, enlisted in the Navy and uh, was assigned to Bud's Class 235. And that was the beginning of a new journey. Wow. Well, we always talk about this too, because, you know, for us in, you know, in the ballroom dance world, it is sort of like this really random, like nobody wakes up one day and says like, you know what I really want to do? And they talk to the career counselor and say, is there a ballroom dance teaching job somewhere? <laughs> like nobody does that. And so it's probably not the same thing, definitely. But we have to deal with that same sort of concern from like the, the outside world. And, and part of me, I'm probably going to make military references, but we'll, we'll refer to the world outside of Arthur Murray as the civilian world. But we have people that will, we always talk about that, that you have people that show you that they love you by cheering you on, or you have people that show you that they love you by worrying about you. So how did your parents yep. respond to that? Like, you know, was one more worrisome than the other? Were they telling you to pump the brakes? They try to write your boss and see if you can get your job back? <laughs> <laughs> I would describe it as cautious optimism. Okay. Um, going back to the fact that it was peacetime. So obviously a very dangerous job just in and of itself. But that's, of course, under the assumption that I was going to make it. But it's all in all, it's about an 80 to 90 percent failure rate. So there was a high, high chance that I would join the Navy, not make it through the SEAL program and kind of be stuck in the Navy for five years, uh, which would, in their mind and, and mine too, would delay my business career for five years, sure. uh, which of course, you know, there's the, the concept. It's always going to be there. You can always go back to it. But again, <laughs> when we talk about calculated risk. This is a huge calculated risk just based yeah. on the mathematics of the attrition rate. Um, so cautious optimism, once they realized that I was definitely serious about it, I was definitely passionate about it. And when, you know, we moved up to Crested Butte, they knew that I was serious. Now, taking it a step further, my class had a, a rough beginning to our journey. Uh, we can get into some more of this later, but as you know, from reading the book, um, our class leader actually died during hell week. So your oh, class yeah. leader is to be the, the highest ranking officer in your class. And that changed things a bit for not just for me, but also for my parents' uh, perception of how dangerous the job really is, because we do have guys die in training. And he, um, he had a, experienced a massive heart failure and drowned in the pool on the fourth day of Hell Week. And that was kind of the first eye-opening experience of what life in the teams would potentially be like. And then my class graduated and literally, well, we graduated from the first six months from BUDS, and then we were about to start the advanced portion of training, which is called SQT or SEAL qualification training. Literally two days before we started SQT was 9-11. Mm. That took it another step further where my parents really started to worry <laughs> as yeah. all parents of all military personnel. And then, uh, you know, uh, about a year later after I'd 
graduated and gone to my team at SEAL Team 5 based here in San Diego, Coronado specifically, uh, Afghanistan had kicked off, obviously, and then the war in Iraq was imminent. And so word around the special operations community and naval special warfare was starting to fly of, you know, who's going to go to Iraq? Who's going to be first in? And typical military went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Until finally, uh, we realized that our, our task unit from SEAL Team 5, uh, the task unit is uh, typically, they call them troops now, but is uh, two platoons together, so about 35 SEALs. And we were given the word, finally, and, uh, and this once and for all, that we would, in fact, be the first SEALs deployed to Iraq to operate predominantly in and around Baghdad, Ramadi, and Fallujah, uh, getting there in April 2003, right after the city fell. Wow. So that's when my mom really started to worry. <laughs> my dad worries in your typical ex-Marine fashion. He keeps his mouth shut and plasters on a smile. And yeah. uh, my mom looked at me like she was never going to see me again. <laughs> yeah, gosh, I, I was like, mom, that's not deportive. <laughs> <laughs> well, then there comes that point like where you just need that endorsement. Like you just need them to say that one kind of positive thing to know that they're, they're all good. So like, was there that point where she just kind of accepted it? No. <laughs> the day I left the SEAL teams was when she accepted. <laughs> Classic. So I think that, I mean, what's so cool, I mean, I think just the Crested Butte move to me, did you guys do that specifically because of the altitude? We, uh, we, were, we were in a very you know, blessed position. My parents had built a house uh, up there. So we moved up there and lived um, at their Crested Butte house uh, during that time. Uh, and kind of made it our home base and really like literally carved out a training facility out of the side of the mountain. You know, we hung climbing ropes 30 feet high in the cypress trees. We uh, used fallen trees, shaved them down to create logs that we would carry on long, uh, long trail runs. Uh, we would swim in ice covered lakes. I mean, it, was, uh, it was quite the experience. And I, I, you know, I, I know fitness wise, there was definitely a lot of training value there. I don't know how much torturing ourselves in the ice covered lakes helps, but <laughs> we did it nonetheless. I mean, we would yeah. climb mountains, we would all kinds of stuff just to really, really get our bodies into peak physical condition because my philosophy and the philosophy I tell the guys that I mentor is let, let physical fitness be the last thing you have to worry about. Yes. You're going to have a lot of other stuff to be stressing about in SEAL training, but let fitness not be one of them. Yeah, gosh. Well, I think this is such a perfect segue just to talk really quickly about the fact that if you can overpressurize a simulation, like what that does, like the spillover effect when you hit the next layer up, that you're going in there with like a surplus, you know, you look around like when you mentioned how what it was actually like when you finally got to that next level and you and you guys finally got to buds and how so many people that were probably just hitting the gym minus the freezing lake and the logs and things like that. And I'm sure that really paid off. Yeah. I mean, everybody, especially now more than ever, because there's, we've kind of had to intentionally lift the veil of secrecy on the Naval Special Warfare community. There's so many more resources now. All guys go through what we call pre-BUDS now, which is a two-month strength training course before they get to BUDS. We didn't have that oh, back then. Nice. Um, so if you're not in peak physical condition when you get to boot camp or OCS, you will be by the time you get to BUDS. <laughs> um, but, they, but again, BUDS is a level playing field. We've got Olympic athletes. We've got college athletes, high school athletes. It doesn't matter. I mean, you'll have the biggest, toughest guys in the room quit in the first two minutes of hell week. Uh, you never, you just, you don't know who's going to have the mental fortitude to see it all the way through. And it's a really fascinating experiment of mind and body because you'll look at a class of a couple hundred students who are about to begin and you could never, ever handpick the people who are going to graduate. You could never predict it. Wow. 
going to hell week, you know, the way that you wrote about that, I think was so specific. And it was, I, I know Hollywood does their best to try and simulate what that might be like. Is there a movie that you feel like kind of is the closest thing to it before they make the Taking Point movie? <laughs> <laughs> Um, not really. I think that, you know, one of the most realistic uh, movies that captures obviously the horrific nature of combat in an urban setting, especially Ramadi and Fallujah is, is uh, American Sniper. Um, Chris is a good friend of mine, but ironically, as amazing as Clint Eastwood is, their depiction of Bud's training was way off. <laughs> they oh, could have done, everything else is so realistic, but the, the Bud's portion was like super cheesy. So I don't know, you know, what the, the philosophy there was, but, um, there's other movies that I think have captured it better, but um, there's no book, there's no movie. Uh, I, I think honestly, the, the best depiction of it is probably those Discovery Channel documentaries oh, yeah. uh, that followed Class 334 around. Uh, that's going to be your most realistic, but still, it just doesn't capture the nature of that environment. And that's why, you know, when people ask me, you know, how did you mentally train for that? And there is no real way to train for that environment. You, you, you train yourself physically as hard as you possibly can, which will increase your mental fortitude that's about all you can really do. Um, it's going to be a different path and a different journey for everybody. And each person will react differently to those external factors. Cause you know, these guys that I mentor or people who ask to be mentored, they always ask those cliche questions of what's the hardest part, you know, how do I get through it? And there's no answer for that. It's different for everybody. For sure. Well, and I think that, you know, thinking about the fact that you had, was, was it John that passed away? What was yeah. his name? Yeah. yeah. Lieutenant John Scott. Yeah. yeah. And then, and then when your commanding officer and when he said that, that line where he said, like, get used to this feeling, whoa, like talk about what that was like. And do you feel like that kind of helped mentally prepare you in a way to really like lift the veil of just how real this was? Um, it, yeah, it was a, it was just a, a surreal experience. I mean, obviously, you know, that far into hell week, your body is completely broken you're hallucinating from a lack of sleep and then tie in, you know, a close friend's death. Um, it was something that obviously none of us had experienced, not in that level. I mean, some people obviously there had, had, had experienced loss before of family or friends, but not in that type of setting. Yeah. Um, and of course the, you know, the exhaustion of the moment, the time that's passed has led me to forget his exact words, but he talked to us about sort of just embracing that as a reality. And like I mentioned in the book, it was, strange foreshadowing because four months later was 9-11 um, yeah. and that's when you know the reality really set in that that was going to be uh, a realistic part of our experience as SEAL operators. Man to think of that combination of all those things those factors like you mentioned like you got John passing away and then you have 9-11 uh, just to add to the pressure you'd never wish that kind of pressure on anybody but at the same time do you feel like the pressure is what got you to the point that you're at right now? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I think that the realistic pressure of everything becoming real, um, obviously all SEAL training is taken very, very seriously, but 9-11 changed everything. Uh, and we were trained by, not that this is a bad thing, but we were trained by peacetime SEALs. Every SEAL now is trained by a combat veteran, Wow. literal. And we've been applying constant flow of lessons learned from the battlefield to the way we fight, the way we train, the resources we invest in, uh, you know, the way we deploy, the way we structure the teams, the way we structure the training pipeline. Everything has been a constant state of change and transformation. But to your point, you know, the pressure is real. Uh, but one of the fascinating things we see is we have guys lined up out the door to get in to the SEAL program. Wow. And we haven't changed the minimum standards to get in, but you're expected now to crush the minimum standards. Just passing the minimum standards today doesn't mean you'll be passed through to start bus. 
but again, the, those are physical standards. The, it's the, yeah. the mental fortitude, the emotional intelligence, uh, maintaining a positive mental attitude. Those are the things that really get people through. I think also one of the biggest things that prepared me for SEAL training was uh, 6th, 7th, and 8th grade cotillion. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, I, I have to bring it back to dance at some point, man. <laughs> Classic. Oh my gosh, that is so, that is so perfect. Of course it was. I mean, I, I too think of my uh, high school slow dancing as the preparation for everything that I've done in, in the business world. <laughs> well, it's funny. I was talking to one of my close friends. He was a SEAL Team 16 leader. He's the author of the book, No Easy Day, about the Bin Laden uh, oh, yeah. raid. Um, he's one of my best friends. He was the point man in my platoon at SEAL Team 5. Uh, I actually married him and his wife. <laughs> I was oh, ordained cool. minister. Did you know that? <laughs> oh, you know what? I just did yeah. that last year. Yeah, I, that's... That's a scary gig. It took about seven minutes online while feeding the <laughs> I know. I know exactly. <laughs> I'm like, wow, it's really that easy? <laughs> and my wife was like, really? You, you, you paid the $39 for the certificate? I'm like, you're damn right I did. Yeah, I did the same. I got <laughs> my the wall. deluxe. Yeah, I was, did you get the thing where you have the, the clergy parking for your car? Did you get that? No, I didn't even know about that. Yeah, if you, I think like, if you pay the $99 version, you get that. Oh man, I got to circle back and look into that. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I was, I was literally talking to him the other day. We were actually all in, um, uh, in Venice together, just a little getaway without the kids. And he was like, you know, the guys in that group, SEAL Team 6, and you know, I'm talking about the guys in the SEAL Team, it's the guys who danced, who weren't afraid to get on the dance floor, were always the guys who got the girls. But <laughs> the, the, the guys who were too cool, too tough to get on the dance floor were always sitting there on the sidelines being too cool and too tough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember being at a, this is back when I was like a new guy in the teens and I was at one of my buddy's weddings and there were some dead groups and SEAL Team 6 operators there. And, you know, even as a new guy in the teens, you're like, whoa, that's because that's elite. That's tier one special operations. And, you know, mo and the, most of those dead group guys were out there just cutting it up on the dance floor. <laughs> I was like, oh my these gosh. guys are good at everything. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess what it is is that, I mean, if you've gone through all that stuff, anything after that that's easier just seems like a cakewalk, right? Is that kind of how it, how it felt? Not necessarily. Guys are still afraid to get on the dance floor, man. <laughs> you gotta, that, that's what I was talking about the, with my wife, the concept of my new book. And one of those, it's sort of a metaphor for life. But, you know, one piece of advice I would give is like, don't be afraid to get on the dance floor. <laughs> oh, man, that is so awesome. I love that. Well, and we got to talk about this because like, I had no idea when I first reached out to you about this interview and I'm emailing back and forth with your fantastic assistant. And uh, Diane says like, you know, why do you think that Brent would be a good guest? And then I shared that I was from Martha Murray. And then you wrote back, and I've, I've told the story like 10 times now. Uh, and you're like, Arthur Murray, who do you think taught me how to dance for my wedding? And I was like, you're kidding me. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so now thinking about all of the recon and, and stuff that you did as an operator in the Navy SEALs, did you do a lot of recon when it came to preparing for your wedding dance? Well, yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, obviously, uh, my wife and, and my mother-in-law did uh, the bulk of the planning. But um, <laughs> when it came time to find a dance studio, I, I you know, I got to be honest, I always have a lot of respect for the organizations that have uh, really, really good online visibility. 
I used to own a digital marketing agency for 11 years. <laughs> so yeah. Whenever I do a search, if there's paid ads and organic listings at the top of the first page of Google, that's who I'm going with. Um, and that's how we found you guys. And it was um, your location here in Mission Valley, Central San Diego. And it was awesome. Every night we went to our class, uh, we'd make it a date night, you know, we'd get a babysitter or, or her parents would watch the kids and we'd, uh, you know, we'd go to you know, dance class and we'd go to dinner, grab drinks afterwards. But, uh, but yeah, you guys, I, I'm a, I'm an existing customer of yours. Hey. You guys, uh, help, help me choreograph my, my wedding dance with my wife, my dance with my mom. It was an awesome experience. Oh, that is so cool. And how much prep time, what was like your window of prep time to get ready for the big day? From the dance perspective? Like when did you start your lessons and then when did you end up getting married? Like what was the turnaround? I think, we, start, I think we did, I forgot what, like what, you know, I think we signed up for one of the packages, but I think we started a, a couple months out uh, from the wedding. Uh, okay. One was just the dance in general, but then the, the weeks of learning the choreography for the main dances was, uh, that's when, uh, <laughs> and again, it goes back like, it doesn't matter all the you know crazy things that I've done in my life. And when something's new, you you'll still be nervous. And especially if you're a perfectionist, you want it to be to be right. I remember I'd be like sweating and nervous <laughs> like during the classes, and so you know it's all eyes are on you, and you want to get it right, and you want it to be perfect. But uh, this was something new uh, for me, and hadn't done any ballroom style dancing again since. Yeah. <laughs> so, had to uh, relearn how to put my dance shoes on. Yeah, gosh. Well, and, you know, I'm sure that it's not the same experience, but I mean, I think to be able to have accomplished and even just a small win, like, I guess your, your wedding dance isn't a small win, but to be able to walk off the floor after that, how would you describe the feeling, you know, kind of mission accomplished? What, what was it? How would you describe it? Oh, yeah, it's, it's amazing. And there's, there's nothing better than watching a well choreographed, uh, you know, wedding dance. And we've all, you know, God bless whomever I'm referring to, but we've all been to those weddings where you're like, oh, really? (laughs) That was the wedding dance. You guys did literally no preparation at all. Um, But when you see, I mean, it's almost in my mind, not to get too cheesy, but it's almost kind of a a metaphor for how two people work together uh, and interact and uh, how serious they take, you know, the things and that they'll that they'll be facing in in marriage. Uh, marriage is a full time job, as, as you know. It's uh, especially once you start, you know, having all the children, yeah. as you know. Um, <laughs> but when you see people take that seriously, again, it's, it it is kind of a, in my opinion, a, a little bit of a metaphor for how they're going to work as a team uh, from a marriage perspective. Oh, for sure. We work so much on just the the ripple effects of just the leading and following aspect. And I think you actually, you totally nailed that when you were talking about like your, um, your diving partner and how you guys, there was times where you kind of, you know, you're getting these underwater fights kind of thing. That, uh, <laughs> but that's sort of like that same thing, but you have that dynamic where it's this, it gets to a point where it's like an unspoken language, but you've just been around each other. Like you said that you could recognize people just based on how they move. Um, talk about that a little bit. Like, what does that say? Like from a, you know, whether it's from a a marriage standpoint or from a business standpoint where you can get to a point where you could kind of connect and communicate on that kind of level. Well, yeah, no, it's a, it's a fascinating thing. I mean, first talking about, you know, the buds experience you do everything with, with your swim buddy, you do everything in pairs, whether it's uh, man navigation, uh, combat diving. So you're underwater for four hours in the pitch black at night freezing your butt off, but you work together so much. And this goes, you know, platoon wide, not just with your swim buddy, but you know how to react to one another. Um, Because a lot of our communication, for example, in a dynamic combat situation, uh, and and of course, underwater is nonverbal. So you really learn to read each other's behaviors, movements, um, nonverbal communication, because that's how you have to to react to one another um, in the, the real world scenarios. 
you know, same thing applies in marriages. You know, it's it's Nicole and I. We, you know, we finish each other's sentences. We know what we're thinking. I'm like, I always joke. I'm like, we spend way too much time together. <laughs> it's, you know, you know what the other person's thinking, which can be a good thing and can be a, a challenge sometimes too. And oh yeah, you know, mama, mama knows what you're thinking, and you're you're already in trouble. So you got to find a way to navigate your way out of it. But um, <laughs> yes, but, and that's that's the great thing about teams and and partnerships and marriages. Uh, you know, you take the good with the bad, and you learn from each other, and you learn from your mistakes, and uh, hopefully are in a constant state of improvement. Um, one of the things that I loved about you know my my best man's speech at our wedding, he's like, I hope today is the day you love each other the least. Mm. Oh, that's you know what I mean. Yeah, man, yeah. that's awesome. Yeah, we talk about that a lot with our couples getting ready for their wedding dance. And, and we say, you know, we can get you ready to dance for your wedding. But really what we want to do is we want this to be a catalyst for your marriage, you know, and, and right. it's really easy to kind of see that process as a one day window instead of like a lifetime window. Yeah, we had two different instructors at, that we worked with at your studio. And that's what they would talk to us about. It was a great, you know, I'm, I'm doing the sales pitch right now. <laughs> it was much more than just learning how to dance and choreographing a specific dance, but they would talk to us about this is, you know, this is much deeper than just the dance for your wedding. This is a metaphor for life and marriage. So, Yeah. How cool. So now like one thing I want to talk about really quickly with the, with the book, and there's so many great stories of being adaptable and, and leading change. And what would you say would be like the, you know, I mean, I think in general, people just kind of fear that change. They fear the pressure. You know, what, what was one like anecdote or story that you feel like more people should pay attention to if they're getting a chance to read it? You know, that they need to kind of embrace the suck and they need to like, you know, <laughs> sign up for that change and sign up for the pressure. Well, it, it's an interesting question because a lot of people take uh, different things away from the book. And, and most people from the feedback we've gotten is that there's definitely professional takeaways from the book, of course, but there's also personal takeaways mm. um, when you think about dealing with change. I mean, it's just a, an overarching theme of life. I mean, you're in a, dealing with constant change, transformation, growth, uh, overcoming adversity, turning sort of lemons into lemonade. During my sort of book promotion time, I was on the Home and Family Show, and they, of course, wanted to not take so much of a business transformation angle, but more of a, you know, how do you apply these principles to, to family? Um, and to uh, and to the the core values of your family and, and building a great cultural experience with the family and dealing with adversity and overcoming uh, the pains of change and to your point like we say in the SEAL teams you know how do you really embrace the suck how do you maintain positivity in the face of adversity whether it's the loss of a family member a divorce um, your illnesses with your children uh, all these things and one of the things that was really powerful in the book from my perspective because it was very difficult to write about and I literally would get emotional every time I was working on this chapter was resilience the need for resilience is a reality for every single person's life it's a reality for every entrepreneur it's for every business executive every organization learning how to bounce back from adversity hopefully stronger than you were before and one of the anecdotes and stories I focus on is uh, our middle child, Parker Rose. She's four now, but she had a serious birth defect um, mm. when, you know, we found this out, of course, during, you know, you get the first blood work back and you get, you're waiting for the blood work and you get that call that says, you guys need to get into the office now. Mm. The call that no parent <laughs> wants yeah. to get. And, and it's a, it's a, in my opinion, a pretty bad process that they follow. You go to the neonatal part of the hospital and yeah. sitting in the waiting room wondering what the hell is going on. First, they had us meet with a grievance counselor before we oh, even knew what God. was going on. I was like, what would make the grievance counselor available later? Tell us what the hell's going on. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us what the hell is going on now. I'm laughing, obviously, because there's a happy end to the story, but 
um, at the time, we were just horribly emotional, crying. You know, Nicole was obviously just out of her mind. We're meeting with a grievance counselor. They're handing you all these pamphlets. You know, it could be spina bifida, brain damage. You know, the baby might even have passed already. You know, like, what the hell? Oh, my God. Um, and then there was a quick turn. You know, we, we went into the room where we meet the doctor. She walked in, stoic. She goes, all right. I first want you to know that by the time we're done here, you guys are going to be just fine. <laughs> she just uh, straight to the case. We're like, <laughs> okay. I mean, it made us feel not totally better, but at least a little bit better. Um, yeah. And she was very matter of fact about it. And we were told that Parker had uh, gastroschisis. And of course, we were like, gastro, what, what, what did you say? <laughs> what? <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what the hell is that? Um, essentially, any birth defect is, uh, is caused in predominantly by some type of uh, some portion of the body not connecting all the way. So spina bifida means your spine didn't fuse all the way. A lot of brain damages because your skull didn't close all the way. Um, gastroschisis is when your when your stomach cavity uh, does not close all the way. So mm. Parker, uh, the majority of her intestines and a portion of her stomach were on the outside of her body in a you know a small hole that didn't close to the left of her belly button or where her belly button should have been. And so it's a very, very stressful pregnancy, um, you know, constant blood work uh, and fluid checks, you know, two or three times a week. And Nicole would have to go in. Uh, and then, of course, when uh, Parker was born, she, she wasn't premature. She was right at 37 weeks. Uh, but she was born with her intestines on the outside of her body. Wow. <laughs> and she had to go into. And the, the other issue with that is the surgeons don't necessarily know exactly what, what path they're going to take until the baby's born. They have to do a quick assessment. Um, so, you know, my first experience, you know, with Parker's birth was kissing Nicole goodbye and escorting, you know, my newborn daughter to, uh, to get prepped for surgery, which wow. was, again, it's even hard to like, <laughs> it's, yeah, thinking gosh. about it, it's hard to talk about it now, but watching a, a 20 minute year old newborn be prepped for serious surgery is a, a horrible thing to watch, but also from a, a strange perspective, fascinating to watch these doctors, surgeons, and nurses just calmly prep this tiny little newborn. For a serious surgery i'm like i'm freaking out and they're like cool as cucumbers yeah. um, and uh and you know eventually i had to leave and literally 35 minutes later our amazing surgeon came in and took his gloves off and i was like do you have somewhere to be what, what's going on <laughs> uh, he's like no no he's like no no we're good we're good we're all done <laughs> wow and so they, they were able to do what we call a primary closure which they basically stuff all the intestines back in and sew her up um, she did have a year later, she had an emergency surgery because she had a incisional hernia, not too serious, but they said to watch out for it. The bottom layer of stitches ruptured. And so she had a bit of a hernia oh, they yeah. had to fix. But uh, again, the amazing surgeon also took it upon himself to do some cosmetic work on uh, that area on her tummy. Uh, we didn't even ask him to do it. He just did it himself. Um, and she's, you know, a happy, precocious, very opinionated little four-year-old who loves <laughs> dance, swimming and gymnastics and riding horses. Oh, <laughs> so, man. So it, is, but again, it, you know, watching, you know, a child be so resilient is a really powerful thing. Um, and, and I've found, too, that sometimes children are more resilient than adults are. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy, right? I know. Yeah. Wow, that is incredible. I can't even imagine. I know we had our second ended up in the NICU, and it was a very similar yeah. thing where they – one doctor opened with, so let's talk about the Down syndrome and we're the same thing. And then we're just completely shocked. And, and, and then eventually, you know, she's fine now, but she was yeah in the NICU for a couple of days and, you know, but I can't even imagine 
prep for surgery as a 20 minute year old baby. I mean, that's, that is nuts. Well, it's actually, it's funny. And yeah, Parker was in the NICU for 25 days, which oh I mean, basically gosh. lived there. I bring my laptop every day and I come and go from the office and it, it was, you know, it was rough, but 25 days is half the time, half the average time that, that gastrocesis babies spend, which wow. is also another cool thing about my little warrior baby. Um, <laughs> but then uh, two years ago, I think it was maybe it was last year. Our oldest son, who's twelve, he had his his appendix ruptured. Mm. Uh, <laughs> for for five days, I thought he was just kind of sandbagging, trying to get out of going to school and <laughs> trying to get out of going to football practice. I'm like, you're fine, get out there. And then after like the fifth day, I was like, God, maybe he is really sick. <laughs> oh, <laughs> such a jerk. I took him to the doctor. They're like, you need to get him to the ER now. I was like, Oops. Oh, Sorry, daughter. Um, and uh, <laughs> guess who the surgeon was who who did Tyler's uh, surgery? You're kidding. Oh, my <laughs> I was, gosh. I was like, I love you, man, but we really got to stop meeting like this. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Oh, man. Yeah. Well, uh, I want to ask you a couple final thought questions. And then um, and I just want to thank you once again for taking the time. Uh, sure. This has been fantastic, man. I just, you know, it's been so great to, to pick your brain on this stuff. And uh Gosh, we could do a whole episode just on, on, on kids, and then we'll do another one on marketing, and then. <laughs> yeah. So, so first thing is, um, what would you say is what's one piece of advice that you've received that you think that everybody could benefit from if they listen to it? I think that it's not in these terms, but I, I've evolved it throughout you know the, the experiences I've had in my life. I've been given this type of advice, but more succinctly the way I describe it is, and I did a talk at Google about this, is really living a purpose-driven life outside of your comfort zone. Because in my experience, every time you push the boundaries of your comfort zone, something magical happens. It's not always something positive. Sometimes it's something negative that you have to turn into a positive. But anytime, at least in my life, where I've taken that calculated risk, I've, as we say in the SEAL teams, you get comfortable being uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. When you think about it, you know, think about, you know, a certain width of a comfort zone. Every time you push that boundary, it gets a little bit wider. And the things that you used to find uncomfortable or difficult or even seemingly impossible can actually become a part of your everyday reality. Whether that's something in parenting, something in business, it could be the smallest thing of having that difficult conversation with that colleague at work, that thing you've been putting off, uh, that difficult conversation with a customer, with a client, with your spouse, with your child. You know, you say you're going to get up and go run three miles, run four, run five. You know, it could be it could be a health and wellness thing. Get off your ass and go train for that half marathon that you've been talking about for five years. Why aren't you doing it now? So not putting those things off. And again, it kind of goes back to not living a life of regret where you know you're you're on your deathbed and you're thinking of the list of things you wish you had done. That's a conscious decision that you can make in your life. Just like the instructors would tell us at the beginning of SEAL training, they would say that winning in this program is a conscious decision. You literally are going to make up your mind whether you want to pass or fail. And that's a great metaphor for life in general. We make conscious decisions every day to live a, a wonderful purpose-driven life of seeding and failing and learning from failures and giving back, which is another amazing way to, to live a great life is to constantly find ways to give back to others. It doesn't always have to be giving money to charity, but giving time or helping others and, and things like that. So I would say, you know, to sum it up, live outside your comfort zone, because the more you do, the wider that area becomes. And that's, that's where the magic happens. That is so great. Is there ever a time when you're just out and about and you have to really hold back the urge to say, do you know how many magazines I've been in and that I'm also a Navy SEAL? <laughs> no, I, I really only drop the Navy SEAL thing when I get pulled over. 
<laughs> do you? Oh, good. I was, because um, I think I would just, I would use that to the, I mean, people would, there'd be a big Navy SEAL logo on the side of my car. And <laughs> I literally, I was, we live in an area called Rancho Santa Fe. It's like a little bubble within a bubble in San Diego. And I rolled through a stop sign in our little village town and cop pulled me over. It's California Highway Patrol. So I'm like, I'm screwed. <laughs> and, you know, I was like, I don't want to do it, but I'm just, I'm going to have to do it because I don't want to take it. I was like, by any chance you have a sort of, a past or some leniency for a combat veteran and he ended up being a marine combat veteran we talked for 25 minutes we exchanged contact info oh, <laughs> and i didn't get a ticket nice <laughs> <laughs> that's one of the many perks of being a navy seal combat why, why do you think i signed up <laughs> totally <laughs> that was the main reason <laughs> <laughs> and you'll never pay for another drink in san diego <laughs> all uh, right hopefully. yeah right i know well brett it has been such a great time getting and getting to know you and talking about your story and um and so now where can people follow some of your content where can people where, where would you like to direct the audience if they want to kind sure. of take the next step up in their own kind of personal journey or business journey to to go a step further sure uh just from the social and content standpoint i'm on twitter just at brent gleason uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I have a weekly column on Forbes. So if you just Google Forbes, Brent Gleason, all my articles show up. Uh, so that's a depiction of a lot of the, the content and philosophies from you know, business and life. Um, my personal website is brentgleasonspeaker.com. And we just launched our company's new website, which is takingpointleadership.com. And I awesome. uh, just wanted to really thank you. I, I think you and I could probably talk for days about all this stuff. So we'll have to do it again soon. But uh, it was uh, an honor and pleasure to be on the show. Absolutely, Brent. I appreciate it, man. We'll, we'll have to do a follow-up because there's so many cool takeaways and I can't wait to finish the book. And, uh, and, and I'm looking forward to your next one, man. I think it's, it's exciting that you got another one in the pipeline. Absolutely. Never going to stop. Yeah, <laughs> Maybe a great. children's book next. Yeah, there you go. That would be a cool children's book. If, if you could do something <laughs> for nine-year-old nine boys that tell their dad that they don't want them to read to them anymore, that would be great. <laughs> Sounds familiar. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time and thanks for the plug for, for Arthur Murray. I'm so glad that you had a great experience with the lessons. Uh, thank you, brother. I really appreciate it. So in regular life, it's easy to postpone pressure. We send a few rationalizations across the desk of our comfort zone marketing department, and we come up with new and exciting ways to bunker into the status quo, unless you make a decision to embrace the suck. You can't get any better at pressure by avoiding pressure. So what are you avoiding? Is it training a new hire, taking on a new role, or just having a difficult conversation? You know, Brent's message isn't just about icy lakes and logs on your back, which would be totally cool but it's about what can happen when you make pressure a habit. To use something that people will constantly avoid as the catalyst to improve and reveal who you can really become. I wanna thank Brent for sharing his incredible story and don't forget to pick up his book, Taking Point in bookstores everywhere. As you journey outside of your comfort zone, consider this podcast as your travel companion. So if you're enjoying it, please go to iTunes, search Off the Floor, and hit the subscribe button. Thanks so much for listening.